The year is 1988. I'm Dave. I'm Zach. I'm Ann Nocenti. And this is My Marvelous Year. Hello and welcome to My Marvelous Year, the show where we go through the origins of Marvel Comics from Origins to today. Well, we go through the history of Marvel Comics through Origins to today, not just not just the uh, the origins, of course. I'm Dave, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. I am joined today by two very special guests. We've got, of course, Zach Dean on the line. How's it going, Zach? Oh, pretty good, pretty good. Pretty excited about this episode. Absolutely. And we also have Anne Nascenti, longtime editor and writer of Marvel Comics, as well as lots of other comics that you may have heard of. Probably, I would say, most well-known for stints as editor of Uncanny X-Men from 84 to 88, as well as an iconic Daredevil run with John Romita Jr., amongst others, and many, many more, including uh, some more recent works that we're going to talk about today, Ruby Falls, and the seeds, which definitely we want to dig into a bit. But Anne, mm-hmm. thanks so much for joining. We're going to want to talk to you about Marvel, of course. But first off, I just wanted to ask you, how did you get started in comics? How did you get started working at Marvel? Um, it's back in the day, in the 80s, back when uh, New York was not the New York you know. Um, it was a, a pretty crazy city, pre-internet, and everyone got the village voice and turned to the back and got themselves through the want ads in the back. You got your apartment and your job. So I was working as a cocktail waitress and doing all the things that really young girls do when you come to New York. You kind of like trade off your cuteness and get jobs that give you lots of tips. And then at some point you go, hey, wait a minute, I want to be known for something other than my cuteness, which will fade. And uh, I answered, I started looking at uh, editorial jobs and I saw an ad in the Village Voice for editorial work and I answered the ad and it was Marvel Comics. Very nice. Very nice. Do you remember, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to get too in the weeds. I know when I, when I asked you initially, you were like, well, I, you know, it's been a while, right? Like, I don't know exactly how much I'll remember. And then before we were talking, you're like, well, when I, when I'm talking exclusively about the eighties, you know, it's, it's like, it's a, a memorial, you know, I'm still here <laughs> doing <laughs> yeah. work. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, we all in the industry laugh about the term legendary, you know, when they start calling you legendary, yeah. they're getting ready to, <laughs> move you to the graveyard you know (laughs) so but the other thing is um you know memory is very strange and when you are interviewed a lot and i've been interviewed for 30 years about this exact moment i don't no longer trust my own memories because Mm -hmm. what i'm doing is trotting out stories and Mm -hmm. it's funny because i knew this about myself when I had a film magazine, the 90s I left comics had a film magazine and I would interview legendary directors like Francis Ford Coppola and, you know, Mel, Darren Aronofsky and Chris Nolan and all these different people. And 
I would read their interviews and set a challenge up for myself because mm -hmm. to say, can I unearth something they haven't said? Yeah, and let me just check here real quick. So Zach, did you, I think we, are, we may have lost the recording there for a second. Yeah, it says not recording. Let me uh, try again. Yeah, it said, uh, sorry, it just disconnected me and said uh, my connection was lost. You shouldn't have said that very rude thing you were clearly saying uh, when it when it bounced you off. What? what? No, I'm just kidding. It's for some reason, this, not you, Anne. <laughs> I'm talking to Zach. The, uh... no. I'm always rude. I, I Dave, like Dave to be saw rude. me like holding up a finger and about to interject. Yeah, yeah, I kicked him off. off the call. No, that was weird. We had a, a weird uh, little glitch there. Um, okay, let's yep. boot it back up. I'll, I'll try to kick us back in where we were talking. And you were just saying how memory is uh, is a funny thing, and and obviously like yeah, you've had this this chance and opportunity to sort of perfect your answer about your own comic book origins over time. Like I'm obviously like that is not the first time that question has been asked of you. Um, is that in coming up with the the original questions in unearthing? I'm curious, like as an interviewer as I'm interviewing you, what did you, what did you try to look for? Like, what were your, what was your approach in terms of like, how do I dig into getting to know this person in a way they haven't talked about before when they're doing a million interviews a day? Well, I, I'll give you an example of, um, uh, when I had the film magazine and I had to interview Francis Ford Coppola and I watched, I read 30 years of interviews with Francis mm. Ford Coppola. And I, so I knew all his, memory gems. I knew that if I asked him about, you know, the silverfish, you know, his, he was one of the first people that did like a remote video cam. He was, you know, a lot of the different, you know, so I wanted to derail those obvious answers that he had told over and over. It's completely understandable. And some people I couldn't surprise, like Mel Brooks, you know, told me the same stories he's been telling for 30 years, but it yeah. was still fun and it didn't matter. So when I went out to meet Francis, I walked in and I said, you know, I've read 30 years of your interviews and watched 30 years of your filmmaking. And um, I know so much about you and you know nothing about me and I'm scared, you know, and he said, well, that's the point of the conversation, which is his classic. 70s film and it kind of set the stage to roll us into a more interesting mm. interview yeah. I thought so it's it's really about um, helping someone re-remember it's not that you perfect your memories it's just you go on autopilot yeah. you know because you've been asked before yeah, it's funny you just mentioned gem and I was about to say like I've just I just heard that phrase something about a memory gem somewhere and it's I read Ruby Falls last night and that's that's a, yes, <laughs> a, a recurring in motif in that, that comic of course so yeah it's, yeah, it's weird it's like um, we have oh, false it's like memories. memories of your memories and... of your you know you just, memories of your memories yeah. of your memories and so ruby falls takes on yeah. that whole oh, yeah. bugaboo and there's no real way out of it i mean i'm doomed to oh, misremember yeah, of course and it, it's funny i know this is about marvel comics in the 80s and whenever we get together us 80s folk and talk about the 80s at Marvel, we have this like glowing memory of the shenanigans and the chaos and the you know goofball stuff we used to do and it was pretty goofy back then you know it was especially because of you know may he rest in peace mark grunwald and 
He, he made sure that the office was always exploding with weird stuff. You know, like literally stuff that would get you fired today. Like we used to have whack-offs with our names on paddles and whack off on the, and it was all just, we had guns in the office. We had liquor in the office. You know, you could smoke back then. And, you know, one day Mark came in naked except wrapped in saran wrap. And so it, those memories are real. There's even pictures but it's all stuff that would get you fired at off your job in a heartbeat sure. today. How, how often, if at all, are those uh, 80s reunion type things? Is that like a fairly close-knit group even now? Uh, it's more like if we if we run into each other at a um, comic book mm-hmm. convention or, you know, the weird thing about the 80s is none of us had phones. You know, we didn't have cell phones and nobody carried cameras around mostly because we were really busy. I mean, we were quite overworked. So um, the only one that had a camera really that I remember was Elliot Brown. And Elliot Brown started a blog where he dredges up these old photos and we all go on and go, oh yeah, I remember that time, you know. There's there's Danny who ran the bullpen resting his drink on Jack Morelli, the letterer's head. And, you know, you, we kind of try and piece together. Who's that? You know, and sadly, a lot of um, the talent from that those days mm. are gone. Sure. Sure. Did you expect uh, when you were even then or, or kind of as you progressed throughout your career, you know, you said you, you obviously were heavy into Marvel in the 80s and then in the 90s, you did some stuff early in the decade and then kind of you moved into other uh, arenas essentially did you expect these comics mm-hmm. and these stories to be sort of revisited and, and re-explored the way they are now decades later because i know i don't think anybody at the time i don't think anybody i mean you know you could i'm pretty sure that there were and you'd have to google this but i think uh some of the first articles started appearing in like the times and places like that you know, our comics literature. I think that was from, you know, Mouse, maybe Art Spiegelman. And, but I mean, in the office, when you're kind of cranking out, um, you know, I was writing a couple of books a month and editing, you know, eight books a month. And so you're talking 10 comics a month. That's, it's almost like writing 10 Mm -hmm. movies a month or something. And it's just, it was happening too fast and furious for, anybody to pause and think that these were going to be scrutinized. And we thought they're, you know, roll it up in your pocket, read it at the beach, toss it in a, you know, on a bench, let someone else read it. I don't, you know, people like Mark Grunewald had pristine collections in um, plastic bags and stuff. But I think most of us were not, um, it was pre super collector market. It's actually kind of, that kind of leads me into a question, it, and we're, I'm jumping ahead. We, we got a bunch of our, our listener questions, um, but that this segues into okay. it nicely. We, we had someone, Carlton, ask, how do you keep track of all the characters and their continuity in the X-Men universe all the time? But I, I wanted to say, do you... Well, yeah, <laughs> we but didn't. You're, you're saying Mark had this collection. I, I've always wondered this, you know, in, in pre-digital ages, how would you want, if you, you know, if a writer wanted to check back on the continuity back in the 60s, right? It, well, we had a archive? we had a couple things going on. You know, it was we had a we had a storeroom mm-hmm. with okay. all the comics in it, 
in black binders. And so you would literally, just like you went to a library to research, you'd go into the Marvel mm -hmm. closet, you know, and you'd, you know, look up and then you you could see okay. all the comics, but it was very labor yeah, intensive. And then Mark and Elliot and a bunch of the more um, historian, uh, you know, talent at Marvel started that thing, Marvel Universe with the cards. Yeah, remember cards. that? The well, no, it was it was like a book, and there was like a very canon. Oh, okay drawing of the character and then their powers and their weight class and kind of like so you could flip through that and go okay if the hulk is fighting spider-man you know who mm -hmm. wins that kind of stuff and also height you know important kind of things that you needed but for me i was lucky that when uh I, because i trained under wheezy louise simonson and i kind of learned the method of how she kept track of all the X-Books and the mutants. And, you know, we used to make like charts and, you know, who have we played with lately? Who mm -hmm. do we need to play with? Who have we tortured? You know, oh, so-and-so's boring. Let's like torture him. <laughs> and, you know, um, and then Chris, of course, had, you know, billions of notebooks. And um I was lucky in that I had Peter Sanderson was my assistant editor. And Peter is like an encyclopedic um, memory of Marvel Comics history. So, you know, you'd either run down to Mark's office or talk to Peter Sanderson and you'd sort of figure things out. But, you know, there was no Wikipedia. Yeah, right, of course, yeah. Did, did that, did that yeah. matter? To, uh, that, that kind of continuity? How important was that to you when you were writing, like, say, Daredevil? Right, that that like rigor of um, you know fact checking. You know, did did that? I mean, I think that it, it, we didn't do that much fact checking, and I can even vaguely remember like some like moments at lunch with Chris Claremont when we were like, "Oh my God, we 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 put somebody in hell and forgot <laughs> to bring them back," you know, or you know, I think it was like. Ileana or someone, <laughs> you know, it was like, because we had, we had the mutant books. Um, we had all the X-Men books, the mutant books. And then we also were doing the miniseries. Then we had like Wolverine, mm -hmm. Katie pride, and we had all the, you know, little miniseries stuff. And so we had to keep track of where everyone was and having all the editors running around in the bullpen together with all the artists there too, they would come in and out to drop off work. That made it easier because you could literally run down to the editor's office that was handling uh, Silver Surfer and say, where is he? Is he in space? Is he on earth? Is he, you know, in limbo? Can I use him? You know, and then it, you'd, you'd sort of, it was all yeah, talking yeah. rather than, you know, some, some source you could yeah. go to, but it was, it was yeah. fun. It was really fun. And I think with Daredevil, you know, sometimes you write comics that are very, it's like fitting your storyline into a jigsaw puzzle, which is what it's more like today. You're taking a little niche in an 80 year history of a character and you're fitting it into a piece of continuity that might involve crossovers and all kinds of other stuff. It might involve TV shows. You know, um, when I was brought in to do some of the new 52 stuff, I know this That's isn't right. Marvel, but it was literally like, 
you know, we're, we're bringing the characters back to their youth before they were who they were. Plus, you can't do this because of the TV show or you need to match this because of the TV show. And eventually he's going to end up in the Justice League. So you've got to, like, start him reckless and immature and end with him team worthy. And it was like all this stuff, this little puzzle. And I love working like that, too, because it's like limits can be really fun. Um, but with Daredevil, it was pretty much do whatever you want. You mentioned the the crossovers during that era, and and there are a couple. There's Inferno, and then there's Acts of Vengeance that yeah. Daredevil comes into. And I I actually very much remember your Daredevil. I, I quite like the run, but the the crossovers, especially the Acts of Vengeance, where it's Daredevil versus Ultron, and uh, in the Inferno one is pretty famously Daredevil fights a vacuum. Is to really uh, boil it down yeah. to a sentence. <laughs> I'll never live that down. <laughs> I have a bunch of things I did in my career that I'll that's never gotta be high down, up there, yeah. You know, and that's one of them. It's a great one. Oh, absolutely. Did <laughs> you at the time, did you um kind of revel and enjoy in that crossover atmosphere? Or was that something where you were like, Well, I have a story I wanna tell, but here's this big event thing that is kind of getting in my way. What was your approach to that? I, I always wanted to play in the place in the sandbox, yeah. you know, and all the when all the Marvel characters were tossed into the sandbox together, I always wanted to play. Um, you know, and other people were more like, I am doing this outside the Marvel Universe. There's a lot of runs that were specifically outside the universe. And it really is kind of like maybe somebody was on an auteur kick and they wanted to be a solo and other people wanted to play. I think because I was on at the office, I was more likely yeah. to play in the sandbox. So somebody would say, you know, usually me or started with Wheezy, I think, you know, doing the first crossovers. I think it was Wheezy and Chris and then Chris and I that and you'd run up and down the office and you'd say, uh, you know, Earth is going to hell, hell is coming to Earth, you want to play. And people would either play yeah. or not play. And it could even be really subtle, like there was something going on in the background of your comic so that it would be fun, Easter eggy for um, readers to see, ooh, you know, even though this is a solo adventure, adventure, you know, I can see hell yeah. in the background. So, you know, we, it was it was more fun to play than to not. As is gener yeah, in general in life, it's That's more right, fun right. to play. I never thought of it like that. That's such an interesting <laughs> aspect. It, it was really that much of like an opt-in, you know, if you want to join in, you can pull your comic into this event. Like you... That's... that's yeah, there were no like uh, directives until I think Secret Wars. And that's when that was like taking over all mm. the characters. And then, you know, I've been recently not that recent but when i was doing catwoman and i know this is no, marvel fine. sorry we're not actually um, paid I got, by marvel it just, so it's, just, it's yeah. totally, totally fair oh, game i just got a um i just got a email from you know we all all the bat books i was doing catwoman we all got an email from scott snyder who said you know the joke this is going to be a brutal joker story and he's in love with batman and catwoman doesn't know it do you want to play you know, and it was kind of like you were given a very simple mm. directive and it was really yeah. fun to play. I think because Scott said, you know, if you want to, fine. If you don't want to, fine. And here's the one-liner. And it was so easy mm. to play. Yeah, that, 
as opposed to some huge continuity right. nightmare. So much more exciting than I would have you envisioned know? it. I, you know, I think in my head, I will always have it pictured as, you know, you, you're in the middle of your, your hyper-focused creator run and someone comes over and says like you know interrupts that and you know it's like no you have to drag this in but that's that's fascinating that it was once in a while it would be mandatory i think dc had a what the moment what the hell moment and we all had to have the last page of whatever we were working on have a oh my god yeah moment you know and it's like i i think it's because i was on staff at marvel for so long i was Mm -hmm. a team player you know i enjoyed and i understood the editorial side of things it is usually just something that was originated because of fun or you know comics are a roller coaster of tanking in sales and rising in sales so sometimes it would literally be nobody's buying comics let's do something to create some excitement to make bring people back in the comic shop. So, you know, I think it's just being able to see both sides of the fence, editorial and freelance, because freelance is completely different. Then we're just, then you're just in your little box, all paranoid and suspicious, you know, and thinking everyone's out to get you. (laughs) (laughs) They're talking about you halfway across the world, right? Yeah. Very good. (laughs) Yeah. Can I ask this question from Dan, Dave? Do you think that's good? Yeah, go for it. Um, one of our listeners, Dan, asks, basically, uh, how did you get started on Daredevil? I think that leads into what you were saying. Was that something, did you come to Daredevil? Was there an opening that you, you know? You know, um, again, I, the, it's just my memory. Oh, okay. You'd have to ask Ralph, too, yeah. you, if you interview Ralph Macchio. I mean, he's like a real repository of history um, of Marvel Comics. And... Uh, what I remember is that, you know, Frank left the book, and I think a lot of people didn't want to touch mm-hmm. Daredevil because it had just had this great Frank yeah. Miller run, which we all loved that run. And uh, sometimes I feel like because I was naive and just and, and young and hadn't written that many comics, I think. Probably a lot of people didn't want to touch Daredevil, so there were a few suckers around, you know, like me. And I think what Ralph did was he he gave a bunch of us fill-in issues. And, you know, I wrote one, and I, I don't remember who else wrote one. And what I didn't realize is that we were trying out. You know, I thought I was writing a single issue I think it was uh, Barry Windsor Smith and I came up with a story together and did did this uh, B- uh, Black Widow story in Daredevil. And, you know, then Ralph asked me to take over the book. So you'd have to ask Ralph what he was thinking. You know, it, for Ralph, it might have been like, nobody wants this book, <laughs> but there's this chump over here who doesn't know any better. Yeah. I and mean, that could be what Ralph says. Did, did you have like an affinity for Daredevil? Do you have, I mean, do you, did you have favorites at the time? Was there, was Daredevil someone you were drawn to? No, because I wasn't really, uh, I wasn't really a comic person yeah. before I got the job. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know, um, I didn't really have like, oh my God, I want to write this character type thing. But then I, I started by focusing more on the villains while I figured out, I think I did a series of really creepy for issues with that were just mm-hmm. one shots, more about creepy villains than about Daredevil. And then it wasn't until 
uh, John Ramita Jr. came on the book and uh, we came up with Typhoid mm -hmm. together that it really clicked who Daredevil is, all his multiple conflicts, you know, and it, it's always a, a matter of basing it on what, what has gone before. And Daredevil seemed to have a weakness for crazy chicks, you know, so we created this character that would go after Matt and Daredevil mm -hmm. separately so that you highlight the dual identity thing and you highlight different aspects of his character, including how does Karen feel when he comes home covered in blood every day? You know, how does, how does, uh, how does he feel when he can't make a case in a courtroom and then just says, well, screw that, I'm going to beat them, you know? And it's so there were like all these, uh, you know, great conflicts in that character. So I completely fell in love with him once I understood mm -hmm. who he was. I think in the beginning, I didn't really quite mm -hmm. get him. I could say, I, know, I've, I mean, I think I've was. read probably the first 20 issues of that in the last week. And I can see that around the Typhoid Mary arc is really where it feels like that just, that clicks. Yeah, totally. it clicked. Yeah, yeah. It didn't click It was before, good. And I, I liked it, but that and... is where it really felt just like it all, all yeah the came and I, I feel like i was fumbling until i found mm -hmm. that and then of course john ramita jr was right mm -hmm. there so we would talk or and he would you know come up with stuff that it's it's all about the artist really because when johnny wanted to redesign mephisto and you know that whole storyline came out of really the the first drawings he did of mm -hmm. mephisto and, uh, you know, so you, you always have to remember that you're writing for the artist. You're writing for yourself. You're writing for the readers. But you're also writing for the artist. You want them to have a blast. So um, the best collaborations are when you're in sync with the artist. Nice. With, with the Daredevil run, one of the things I really like is you put a, a major focus on the world around Matt Murdock, right, on, on New York City life mm -hmm. and all that. Um, it's something you return to even in the, like, times you've revisited the character. I know there's a story in uh, Daredevil 500 you did with artist David Aja, uh, who you're working on on the seeds now, um, where you did, you know, it's yeah. a Daredevil and Bullseye fight, but really it's about these two other characters that we meet, right? And you, was that something you yeah. gravitated towards as a storyteller, or was there something about Daredevil in particular that sort of made you want to tell all these other people's stories because I think it really stands out from Marvel where it's very you know the cameras on Spider-Man right and and he has a supporting cast of course but like yeah. your supporting cast was the world around us you know it was all these different players um where, where did that sort of storytelling come from and maybe it ties yeah go ahead well I I, I think that I always had a problem with superpowers yeah. and I felt an affinity for Daredevil being really handicapped you know he's blind and he overcame a handicap and he doesn't have like normal superpowers he has sort of compensating for a handicap right. powers and so you know because he's a street hero and it, it's interesting because working on the i was one of the producers of the marvel museum i don't know if you guys know about that but it's marvel universe of superheroes is a big touring exhibition they were going to be in that Chicago this we year. i was yeah. one of the producers and it, it's kind of like um you know i always gravitated more for the street heroes like we have a 
we have a whole alley in the museum that's Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, uh, Punisher, and Daredevil, just because those are the yeah, street yeah. heroes. So he already fit in this kind of milieu of of street heroes. And the when I did things like have him team up with Silver Surfer or go to hell, those were aberrations. Mm -hmm. You know, they were like, let's take him someplace new just to see. You know, rather than so he was always he was always. For me, it was more like being a documentarian, mm. and I think partly because I was like a frustrated journalist, and I did go on to be a journalist and a documentary mm, filmmaker, yeah. so a lot of that was like sort of displaced, you know, drive. And one of my beloved mentors, Denny O'Neill, was always encouraging me to bring that kind of street sensibility mm. into the comics. And, uh, you know, but again, it's like memory. I don't know what the hell I was thinking back then. <laughs> Who knows? Sure. Who knows? I was out in the streets a lot. You know, there was like a big East Village performance art scene and everybody was out on the streets, you know, doing performance art. And I was in Hell's Kitchen a lot. And it was definitely like, you know, the a seedy, you know, wonderfully seedy place. And so I think a lot of it was just like, Stealing, yeah. you know, you steal, you steal from what I you think see. I mean, that's great. Like that, that's you can just feel in comics that have that, especially superhero comics. It's kind of a rarity to see that like real worlds really drawn in. But I, I can see so much of that in yours. Like they feel so lived in. Um, in that that Daredevil run, New York City feels so has that specificity to it. Um, that that really drives it. Yeah, and I like to encourage because sometimes I teach. You know, I teach now and I, I like to encourage young writers, young talent to sort of fold themselves and the real world and things they're seeing into mm -hmm. the story and not just think of it as I've got to orchestrate a big operatic mm -hmm. fight. Yeah. You know, it's like you can still layer it. And the more you put of yourself in a comic, the more fun it's going to be for you and the more sort of authentic yeah, totally, it's going to be. Totally. Did you have any, like at the, at the time or throughout your career, you know, you definitely integrate yourself into these stories, right? And, and personal beliefs and, and social issues, I think are interwoven very smoothly into Daredevil in a way that, you know, not every comic does, right? There's certain runs that get held up. Like you mentioned to Denny O'Neill was obviously a, a master at it. Yeah. Yeah. As well. Denny. Um, yeah. Is that something you ever got, like, w was there ever a, a Marvel, whatever the overlord is at that point, editor-in-chief, whatever that role is, kind of put in a hand saying, like, hey, don't talk about these subjects, or, you know, you can't can't quite talk about things Animal that way. Did that happen? niche, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, I'd, you know, in a weird way, I'd have to go dig up interviews with myself <laughs> from, from when it happened, long ago. Yeah, yeah to, sure. Because, you know, I have one of those weird memories I tend to, like, think everything's mm -hmm. great you know and everything was great so i don't i don't remember ralph who was the only one i really had to deal with jim shooter would read all the books as they went to the printer so it was kind of too late by the time jim was reading the book so you really just it was just you your artist and your editor and i don't really remember ralph giving me that much pushback until sort of towards the end of the run when I think I was kind of losing mm -hmm. interest mm -hmm. in the character. And I was continuing to do, I, w I took 
Daredevil out on the road, which I loved, and then I brought him back. And then I think I just was like, I don't have any more stories to tell. But I remember that I had him hanging with an activist. She was a black activist. And my intention was to bring Daredevil deeper into the black activist movement and even have a romance with this girl. And then I remember there was some pushback Mm. on that. You know, it was like, you know, diversity that would make sense now, but, but, you know, maybe they weren't ready for it in the 80s. You know, even though that's what yeah, was on the course. streets, that's yeah, all yeah. that was on the streets. But it was like, it wasn't really making it into yeah, comics that, that much yet. <laughs> yeah. And I think you know, I think that I, I we were all mutually sick of each other. Maybe <laughs> I mean, I was like sick of Daredevil. Yeah. Uh, everybody was, they were sick of me. Every, I think it was like a natural, like, get out of here kind of. Because I did like four yeah, years I mean, or that's, something. That's a long time to spend with one. With one character, yeah. Do you, this is actually um, we have a, a different question from uh, one of our listeners, Justin. He said, if you had a chance to take on a different character, if, was there anyone that you ever, you know, were were longing after that you wanted to to, to work on a, a character or a team, maybe a book? Um, your your pie. You know, I uh, not not really in that. Uh, you know, if somebody gives me an assignment, I do mm-hmm. a deep dive. If someone had said you know, right, stupid mm-hmm. man, you know, I would go deep into the nature of stupidity, you know, <laughs> or something. I mean, I liked yeah, assignments. Yeah, yeah. I liked like someone to say, yeah. write a Punisher story, write a Wolverine story, write a, you know, and then you kind of just roll it around in your head. But I think under all that, and this is kind of hindsight, I think I always wanted to I was always really admired the non-superhero yeah. comics, and I think I always wanted to do that more than anything. And uh, and then with Karen Berger and Berger Books, I finally got to do two graphic novels that are not superhero books. So I, th- I think I, I wanted to start doing that in the 80s, but I guess I was too scared to write a story that didn't have that buttress of the roller coaster ride, the escalation narrative, the fight, the built-in superhero. It was like there's a there's a safe buttress that you can hang things on when you just write a superhero mm-hmm. comic. Whereas like, you know, writing an independent comic that has no superhero, that's just right, your brain yeah. turned inside out. And that's scary. That's really scary. You know, it's I scary mean, R- to R- me. Ruby Falls is just about you know? people talking, right? It's just about normal people talking about their family yeah and it's it's yeah exactly it's you know and it has like the Mm. noir thriller aspect to it but it's um and it and it really was about three generations of women i wanted to karen really wanted this comic to have to be by women Mm. for women not that obviously (laughs) you know men can't read it and enjoy it but it was it was very much of its time of trying to put female voices Mm -hmm. in comics. And Flavia Biondi, when we got her uh, samples, we were just like, she's amazing. And she hasn't really hit in the United States yet. 
you know, but she's oh. out there. Anyone needs a great female artist that, on yeah, a book. Yeah, that artwork's incredible. Yes. Her, her, is that her, how much of a how much input do you have into the collaborators you're working on on these burger books? Is that something that you're looking at art out there and kind of like pitching who you want to try to collaborate with, or is that more on the editorial side that they? This was um, Karen found uh, Flavia. She, y- y- you know, she. I think she, that he, she was supposed to do something with Jeff Lemire, and that got put on hold. And Jeff recommended her to uh, Karen, and then we just instantly, we instantly went perfect, yeah. you know. And uh, David Aha had gotten in touch with me, uh, I don't know when, like, you know, we had done a Daredevil story together, and, you know, we always wanted to work together. So he got in touch with me and said, what do you have? And I, you know, I sent him some wacky ideas, and he kind of picked the, in you know the one that was basically an alien human love story mm-hmm. uh you know he chose it because i think he just you know the idea of him getting to design aliens that are just a bunch of you know screwballs you know we had this notion that aliens are usually depicted as like all-knowing and wise yeah. or in and either benevolent or destructive and and I had this image in my head. What if they were just like bad plumbers who came <laughs> mm-hmm. to fix the sink and, and, yeah, and made a flood? Stuff. So we started from there with them as just sort of bad plumbers. And they were they were human. They were like aliens, but they also each had a distinctive personality. There's a bad mm-hmm. one, a good one, you know, a sociopath. And, uh, and we just had fun with that. Yeah, this nice. is uh, for our listeners. This is the seeds. Um, we're talking about oh yeah, yeah the, so seeds. the seeds from Burger Books. It's the first two issues came out I, I think in 2018, and the the full collection is going to come out either at the end of this year 2020 or, or early 2021. Um, it, I, I imagine the reasons why it's it, it's not going to come out in issues you wouldn't want to replicate right in terms of health and just the state of the world and all that. Um, but could you see moving toward releasing directly as graphic novels? as something you're interested in as a as a storyteller? I think that the whole industry might be yeah. interested in that. But what happened with the seeds was that we did it was written you know before Trump got elected. Oh. So it was written in very different mm-hmm. times. Pre pre campaign even with it all was the, written, the wall talk. Like that was all pre all that, you know, yeah. a, a cultural thing. It it certain things yes, it was written in uh, started in 2015. Yep. So I had outlined it and then, you know, Trump happened and we emphasized, we rewrote to emphasize okay. certain things like the main alien is really kind of a stand in for <laughs> Trump. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, the wall, of course, um, I almost wanted to downplay the wall. Yeah, you know, yeah. the idea was that there's a, a Luddite revolution and people are just sick of their tech and they're like, what was life like before tech? And let's just throw it all away. And there was a revolution and they fought for a zone where you could live without surveillance and internet and just go back to the way it was before, which might be where we're headed. And the, um, so the wall was not the wall. The wall was like the zone. Yeah. Different meaning. And then it was almost like, I felt a little weird about the first issue having such an imposing wall and thinking people would think yeah, the wall yeah. 
you know, but um, I had originally saw it as like a crumbling mess of a wall, but it all works. It's weird. I kept thinking this is going to be dated if it doesn't, if it doesn't come out in when it was written, but it all seems to be working I, out. I read, anyway. it, I read it last night. You it know? still feels still feels very relevant <laughs> to me. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I didn't put that connection together of the wall. I mean, it feels much more like this kind of, I, I don't know. I, I really liked the, uh, the idea of your zone almost like you just said the zone. I don't know if stalker was a, uh, inspiration for this. Well, that was definitely okay. for David was a, yeah, was that, an influence stalker. Very... Cause, cause the zone for me was like, I had a boyfriend who used to just space out and I used to say, are you in the zone? You know, and that's what it was for me. And then when calling it the zone and then David said, you know, oh, this is like stalker. And I think visually he was very influenced by um, Tarkovsky. Am I saying his name right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. But you'd have to interview him for <laughs> yeah, that. Awesome. No, his, his artwork's pretty incredible. So we'll yes, definitely yes. want to check that out. I, I do think it's it's interesting and, and kind of awesome to hear you say that you are gravitating toward these uh, these independent works. Is there anything on uh, the horizon for you? So obviously, like, The Seeds is going to release, but I'm assuming that's all done. Are there works that you have cooking up that are, done, that yeah. are in progress or things that you want to talk about or share? Well, I have, I've written a, a, a couple essays uh, for one for Marvel, one for DC, but I don't know if that stuff's announced yet. And then um, I had a project that was um, in the works pre-COVID. It was going to be my next graphic novel. And then I don't know if you guys feel this way, but it, it's been very hard to self-promote or pitch during COVID because you feel like you're sucking the air out of the room that more important things Mm -hmm. should be voiced. So especially when Ruby Falls, the graphic novel came out in April, we did like zero press because it was just, it felt weird. The world was like, you know, between Black Lives Matter and the COVID and, you know, political changes, it just, it didn't feel comfortable talking about yourself. It's a really challenging balance right now. Um, I I keep looking at my calendar for I, I run a website called Compo Herald, and I keep looking at uh, two weeks from now, election day, and I'm like, I can't schedule anything around this. I'm I like, know. I, what would be an appropriate, yeah. you know, yeah. thing? Nobody's going to be looking at this. So, yeah. Nobody's going to be looking at it. And now I have the same problem with the seeds, which is coming out for, in time for Christmas. And it's just, we don't feel like sucking the air out of the most more important things. So we will do some, you know, down low press but it's uh it's odd right yeah, now certainly. and i have two graphic novels coming out in the year that you shouldn't be really putting out anything yeah well the good news <laughs> so, is sales are up because everyone is home and apparently has more time to read comics so that yeah. that potentially helps um no the seeds is is really cool i, I recommend people check it out ruby falls was really interested uh, really interesting i yeah. mean it's definitely like it's a you know you say it's noir but it's it's definitely your own take on noir you know it doesn't fit the trappings necessarily yeah. that that people would expect um but it's it is this interesting exploration of memory uh like you're talking about and just the way that can impact generations of of people um it's a yeah. it's complicated it's a, it's a very thoughtful work you know it, mm-hmm. it's definitely not uh yeah oh. no, it, it, there's a lot to think about there and it is interesting to hear you talk about daredevil and say like you know you're less interested in the super heroic part of it i think that 
is something that probably stands out to everyone where like violence as a solution is less common in your daredevil you know it's yes. the big beat em up stuff yeah. doesn't click i mean i i always think of your run in as kind of like a proto you know like like lead up to the works like sandman like neil gaiman stuff in terms of there's a focus on all these other things in the community and the world and these characters and then like daredevil makes a cameo you know like he comes in on the side even though it's his yeah. book um it, it's an interesting approach yeah. well i mean it's i think that we all love action adventure and we all love a great superhero story but i think that you have to be careful about what's behind the fist you know the fist should be punching for a very good reason in life yeah. in general and it's it's very hard to orchestrate an escalation narrative to the point where the only resolution you, you you know you can't do peace negotiation because then there's no fight you know and and i and you and i do remember one time i went into ralph and i said what if we had a whole issue where Daredevil just peacefully talked his way out of, and, and Ralph went, no. <laughs> See, I, I think that would have been great, though. Really I think it would be an issue people would talk about, even yeah. now. <laughs> well, you know, I guess you. I tried it a few times. You know, I did the an issue where Daredevil's just sitting in a bar getting drunk, and that doesn't have much fight in it. But you do have to hit the the tropes. But it really, I think it really comes down to I tried to avoid the fights or layer them with something that redeemed them. And what I didn't really understand at the time, it really has to do with punching for a good reason. And recently I was writing an essay about Captain America and how Captain America was created by two Jewish, you know, Kirby and Simon during very anti-Semitic times, and their first issue had hit, had Captain America punching Hitler. And so you're talking like real profound reasons to have him mm -hmm. punch someone. And you know, when you look about the origins of Captain America and the element that he came out of, you really you really think that's how superhero stories should be designed for, I think if I went back and were to write superheroes today, I would probably pay more attention to that, that there has to be a really strong mm -hmm. reason for the punch. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, I mean, or, something about Daredevil that I, I love is I, I think authors who were writers who will kind of, um, it, he, he almost is portrayed as, um, showing kind of the negative side of that violence often, you know, the, the, like the, yeah. the someone who loses control <laughs> a little bit. And, and I think that's something yeah. that comes across and started maybe in Miller's run. And I can see that through line with yours where, you know, the violence is not necessarily this, like you're cheering him on. Like it, it is, it's not fun. No, right? no. Especially I think the scenes that, and, and I haven't looked at those comics in forever. So I, but I remember there was a storyline where, you know, Karen was mm -hmm. upset that he came home with blood on his mm -hmm. gloves or fists. And it, it, you know, you're always trying to play with collateral damage. There were a lot of stories in the eighties about yeah. collateral damage, like Hulk smash, you know, and Hulk saves the day. But what about the guy whose car he kicked over and now he's got a, you know, big lawsuit and can't buy a new car. So there was a lot of consciousness in the eighties about repercussions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. How, so you mentioned, you know, you wrote a, a Captain America story not too long ago with Marvel. You had a story in, I think, uh, the big Marvel comics, um, 
a thousand and one that they did. Is that do you check in every so often to kind of see what's going on in that on that side of things, like with those stories, or do you kind of just like, oh, if I, you know, if they come to me for a story, like you mentioned, you like the assignment. Yeah. And I think I did a Catwoman recently. I mean, they come to me once in a while and I just say, sure, usually, yeah. you know, it's like, it's, um, I, I mean, part of me is like, I want to read new voices in comics. Yeah. You know, I'd be happy to take on a superhero, but for the most part, I want to read, I want to, I want to open the, the pathway for young talent yeah. myself, you know? And uh, so I, I don't really mind that I'm not doing superheroes do you read anymore. A, do you read a fair amount of comics for pleasure? And, and if so, what kind of books do you gravitate towards? I mean, I will tend to, um, if someone recommends something, like um, David Aha just recommended an Emma Roos mm. book. Uh, and, you know, I, I'll pick up something if someone yeah. recommends it, mostly like kind of indie stuff but then once in a while like i picked up uh tom king's the vision and i loved yeah. it because it was like it was like a very um wonderful take on the character to say what if he was a other living right. in suburbia you know with his robot family or whatever he's supposed to you yeah. know supposed to be and i thought that was really a wonderful um way to expand the dimension of a character by looking at them through a different lens because it can't all be canon it ha you have to stretch these characters you have to you have to do the opposite of what people mm -hmm. expect just to see cuz character strong characters snap back to who they are so you can leave canon and stretch them and if they're strong characters you just add layers to them Nice. Love yeah, it. I, yes. I love so, that I domesticity in comic books, the kind of everyday, day-to-day -day stuff yeah. that came through in, you know, the, the Claremont era of X-Men, really bringing the kind of the day-to-day, -day, uh, everyday stuff. Yeah, I mean, Chris was amazing. It was amazing to have that time working with him because he just naturally had strong female mm -hmm. characters. That's what he was interested in. He was more interested in the females, and he comes from a tr tradition of strong females in his in his uh family and uh it just with him it was like stepping into a universe that had diversity and strong females in an era where there wasn't yeah. much of that and he was doing yeah. all that with great operatic um finesse i mean he's he's uh he it was amazing working we with were just him. reading an, an issue in the club um where you know the the x-men issue just opens with i think it's like rogue and psylocke and um, Dazzler, Storm, it basically Dazzler, yeah. in a training exercise, and you just realize like <laughs> no other book at this time had just like natural, casual, just women as the focus for the first ten pages of the comic or whatever, and it really stands out in an in extremely positive way. Um, but yeah, it's totally just it's integrated into the run as a whole. Uh, speaking of that era, did you? We had a question here from one of our, our patrons over on Patreon.com/slash My Marvelous Year. Justin asked, uh, "Did you ever have like?" I don't know, back and forth with Chris Claremont on balancing the long storm the long form story versus like getting the single issue mm -hmm. to to tell a succinct like one off kind of thing, or was that was there editorial interference from anywhere? Oh no, we had a 
like I said, I was trained by Louise Simonson, and Louise Simonson was like, take him to lunch a lot, just let him talk, and respond to the good ideas, and go quiet on the bad ones, <laughs> okay. you know? And it was sort of like, she just, you know, I just became, uh, I just learned from her. And Chris just, he's so creative. He just starts pontificating, and you you just sort of, figure out which are the best ideas. And then we would do a thing where we would, we called it um, singing in rounds where you'd have like a, a long arc planned, which involved a lot of charts and notes and you'd have a long arc planned. And then within the long arc, you, you know, you'd say um, like, you know, what I was mentioning green arrow, it was like, I was given green arrow with the directive. He's, he's a reckless and young and by the end of the issues he's ready for yep. the JLA so that's a year so you have like this is our year arc and then here's our mini arcs and then here's our single issue stories that pay to pay to deepen a character like the, one of the, the one of my favorites was the Storm Forge story drawn uh, drawn by Barry yeah. Windsor Smith, where it was two issues that were really just about the relationship, right. and I think that had a lot to do with you'll have conversations. Is she an African goddess? What does it mean to be a goddess? Let's read. Then we had the redesign to make her a little less alienating, and you know the the sort of Paul Smith, I think. Uh, designed the sort of more mm -hmm. mohawk look mm -hmm. and the punk look, which um, I don't even know if she still has that it look. It comes I back every now does, and again. Right? I think her I hair's down at the moment, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it goes up and down because it was sort of like, you know, a cool idea. And so you basically, you, you kind of check in with all the characters, you know. Have we done anything with Cyclops lately? Have we done anything with so? And then, and then you you design stories to test each character, and it's really just about uh, letting Chris talk, letting get, creating a safe space for him to do whatever the hell he wanted to do, and kind of reining him in just a tiny bit, really. But it was a lot of you know, it was a lot of because uh, he was doing so many books yeah, right. yeah, yeah you know i had other t teams on books where you barely had to talk to the talent you were just like put a good team together mm -hmm. leave them alone with chris there was a lot of orchestration and and you know uh and then i had peter sanderson there to say wait a minute you know in 1964, there was a story, you know, <laughs> that already did that. And so then we decide, oh, is it repetitive or can we build on it? But so I had like this, I had Peter as the historian watching over everything we did, which was yeah. essential. The And I think, you know, we have Wikipedia now, but there was nothing like having like a living human who knew yeah, sure. everything sure yeah that's that's i, I get that. you know? that's my, my co-host is <laughs> a little bit like that right, yeah zach do we have any other good uh listener questions you want to hit off on? I, th I think we've gotten through all the uh let's see yeah all the all the listener questions i wanted to hit but uh thanks to everyone who sent those in yeah thanks everybody over on the patreon that was awesome um and thanks so much for your time i think we've covered some yeah, good ground so, so we know sure. wonderful yeah no this is a blast like yeah. i definitely appreciate it we know from you this year we've got we're going to announce it even though we don't want to we won't self-promote we'll stealth promote exclusively through the podcast ruby falls 
That's a good yeah, way yeah. to put Ruby it. Ruby Falls and uh, the seeds are the seeds will be out soon. Ruby Falls is out now. People can check those out from you. In addition to, of course, uh, all the other comics. Yeah, I think both done. of us read them recently, and yeah, I definitely would recommend both as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. thank very, you very, very much. Yeah. That's so sweet. Yeah, I'm looking forward yeah. to seeing how the thank seeds you. wraps up here in yes, uh, in the near yes, future yes, as definitely. well. So that was our interview with Anne Nascenti. It was really nice having her on. We thank you, Anne, for being on the show. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash mymarvelousyear. Uh, we've got a bunch of great benefits over there, early access to episodes, get a mas- uh, access to the master spreadsheet, our Slack community. You can find Dave at Comic Book Herald. You can find me at My Marvelous Year on Twitter and social media. And music is by Disasterpiece. See you next year. See you next year. That was that was Dave.